0: What up peeps welcome into unscripted and unprepared brought to you by the fine folks at real screen magazine i'm jimmy fox and this episode is with showtime's own Vinny malhotra senior vice president of documentaries unscripted and sports we recorded this sit down a few months ago at real screen west in santa monica Real Screen was good enough to hook me up with a room to do these interviews for the podcast. Um, But for some reason, during this particular interview, there were a handful of staff members coming in and out of the room. So periodically throughout the interview, you are going to hear some background chatter. Occasionally, you're going to hear maybe a copy machine in the background. So I decided, let's make it a drinking game. As they say, if you can't take care of it in post, lean into it and make people think it's intentional. So Uh, Every time you hear somebody from real screen talking in the background of the interview or a copy machine going off during my conversation with Vinny, take a shot. Uh, It didn't take long into this interview uh, for me and Vinny to let our nerd flags fly. We very quickly shared a mutual love for professional wrestling in the 80s. Uh, We covered a lot of topics. We covered Vinny's time at CNN Films basically launching that division. We also discussed what it's like to be a buyer going to major film festivals like the Sundance Film Festival and looking for documentaries to acquire. We talked about his time at ESPN during the rise of the 30 for 30 documentary series. And from there, we went pretty deep into sports. Some listening to this podcast might think too deep. Uh, We talked about our favorite sports center anchors, the future of Monday Night Football now that Mike Tirico is gone. And we also talked about the future of boxing. Showtime is in the boxing business. So I kind of challenged Vinny on whether or not boxing can survive with this younger audience that has fallen in love with MMA. Vinny is without question one of the smartest executives in the unscripted business. It was a pleasure to sit down with him. Hope you enjoy it. <laughs> ready to go i want to start off by complimenting you oh my i I think you have very good taste in employers (laughs) the run you've been on your espn cnn showtime that's top shelf stuff
1: listen it's uh you know i definitely learned a while ago to two things one is pick your boss not your job right which is something everybody always says um but also i i have this thing about never wanting to work in a place where i wouldn't watch that network i wouldn't you know, watch the content that comes out of that place. And so I think it's all made sense so far.
0: So and you're not going to be working at HGTV anytime soon? No, I think maybe Bravo. I love you know, HGTV whatever. by the way. Listen,
1: I watch a lot of HGTV. I have a, of course you what, do. You're a, a mar- you're a married, you're a six year old and yeah. a wife who
0: all together watch
1: fixer upper, love it or list it. I could do a half like, hour
0: right now on fixer upper, but I, I could do
1: love it or list it two versus one. Now, we're big fans of 2.
0: You watch the—really?
1: I have to watch it. I mean, I watch what's on the television in my house. I no mean, disrespect. I got to go to, like, another corner of the house to watch the NBA Finals.
0: <laughs> no you know? disrespect to Love It or List It, but Love It or List It 2, <laughs> that is like Caddyshack 2. Like, nobody says that's their favorite. Listen,
1: Caddyshack 2 is underrated.
0: Oh, jeez. Okay, you're, okay. So you're, the, <laughs> so you're the contrarian. Okay, but how long have you been at Showtime now?
1: I've been at Showtime now since January, so what's that, like almost
0: five as months? As we're recording this, six months? Yeah, close to that. And how did this come about? Who recruited who? Oh.
1: What
0: what can you say on the record yeah. of who recruited? It's, who?
1: A, it's a it's a little bit of a dance. Um, there oh, yeah. was <laughs> pregnant pause. There was a conversation that began casually that grew into a more formal conversation over the course of a few months. Um, mm-hmm. But actually, what ended up happening was I I was a voracious consumer of Showtime and had been for quite some time. From the scripted stuff, you know, like Homeland, obviously Ray Donovan, Shameless, like these shows, it always really appealed to me more so, in fact, than an HBO series. You know, I definitely watch HBO and I like a lot of the, sh- the shows on there, but Show time there was something about the style of storytelling, the characters, that really appealed to me. Well,
0: because, you know, it made sense for me when I heard the news, because when I think Vinnie Malhotra, I think gigolos.
1: Well, I don't most. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I would I'd be... You'd, It'd be hard to find somebody who doesn't think that way.
0: <laughs> so how soon in your first meeting with David Nevins did Gigolos come up?
1: Gigolos came up, actually I reserved it, I think, maybe until my first conversation with Gary Levine, okay. like separately from David. But um but we had a we had a long we had a conversation that built over the course of months and, and it was really at the end of the day me as a admirer of both of the network but also of David, you yeah. know, and it was this idea again of trying to work for someone that I think I had a lot to learn from, that I had great respect for, and what I love about David is that he isn 't just a you know uh, genetically manufactured television executive like he actually right. Has been on set, produced television. You know, made Friday Night Lights for God's sake. And
0: was he there for twenty four as well? I'd he was, imagine
1: he was. Yeah, and you know, he's still the guy that goes to table reads all over Parenthood town.
0: as well. By the way, one right. of my favorite shows. Right. Look at you, you're all over it. Oh, I, I'm a big. By the way, I'm a total Mark for David Nevis. <laughs> mark, by the way, is a professional wrestling term. That yeah, means no. You're, I'm, I'm okay, that. you're aware of this. I'm okay, into that. Okay, yeah. I, I figured, Are you really? Are you, wait, are you a pro-wrestling nerd? I didn't know this. When I
1: was growing up, I went to... Uh, oh, you're from Philadelphia? Yeah, Which we're outside like, of Philadelphia. From New Jersey.
0: Philadelphia is like a... Oh, New Jersey. Yes. Okay, got it. Both, I, both big wrestling pockets.
1: Well, well of course. It's yeah. the Mid-Atlantic. Yeah. I mean, I was <laughs> I, at like the first... What was the What's the... WrestleMania. <laughs> I think I was at like the first or second WrestleMania. Wait,
0: how do you not know if it was the first or second? Well,
1: it was in Philadelphia. Was and it Mike and Andre? Like, no, so it was the second.
0: Yeah. It was the second... Because they were the first and third, I think.
1: All I remember is that my dad took me. To I think King
0: Kong Bundy. I think King Kong Bundy and uh, Hogan and the, and the tournament was the second WrestleMania. Well,
1: holy shit! I, I just stepped into. Oh, am I allowed to curse in your yeah, podcast? T- yes, yeah, you I can. tell. I work talk. at Showtime. If we don't drop an f bomb in something, it's no, you are totally not is is totally showtime
0: <laughs> it, Yeah. How can you not remember who was the main card at the WrestleMania you went? Because
1: I remember my dad made us leave early because. You know, listen, growing up in the Super early, early 80s in Philadelphia, going to a sporting event or anything that was at, like, veteran's stadium yeah. was slightly dangerous. It's like going <laughs> to a Raiders game in Oakland. Like, you know what I mean? So I I think we were probably almost three-fourths of the way through the event, and there was just this chant that broke out. And everyone's like, break his leg, break his leg. It was in some like figure four or something like that. And my father just finally had enough, and he's like, we're out of here. You know, he's like, so, this is way too violent. This
0: is Philadelphia. WrestleMania. I'm, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm looking this up right now because I need to know.
1: Oh, wait a minute. You know what? It wasn't WWF at the time. It was the NWA or what was the other oh, league? Oh,
0: okay. So, figure four, that made sense because yeah. I was going to say Ric Flair wasn't in the WWE at that point.
1: Rick Flair had a. Had so a, you went to a, Ric Flair fought Road Warrior Hawk. And then Road Warrior Animal okay. and Dusty Rhodes yes. fought the Anderson brothers this in a steel is, cage match.
0: This is NWA.
1: Yes, NWA. And then it? Ronnie so, Garvin had a oh, tape face so match at, with Tully Blanchard. Do you remember all
0: Okay, of course. I'm deep
1: tracks here. You
0: were probably at uh, Starcade, Or was it or slamboree
1: or like great american bash great american bash great, bash. great american bash i was at like the first great american bash you were at the great
0: american bash okay now yeah. okay now yeah.
1: we're talking now it's coming
0: no sting yet at that point that was too no early sting. For
1: sting way too early for this sting. Is- it was like the four horsemen yeah this is i discovered nwa by watching like superstation tbs back in yes, the day and it was too. like this one little room that they would have all the matches yes. in, and then inevitably people would go and fight during their interviews absolutely
0: and all that stuff. it was great theater. Which, by, by the way, God bless the internet, because now a whole generation of professional <laughs> athletes are discovering those original Ric Flair promos that he would cut in that small little station in yeah. the south, Yeah, and now Ric Flair's legacy just lives on. There
1: you go. Ted Turner's greatest, you know, accomplishment was Superstation TBS NWA fights. There Dude, you go.
0: I feel like this is the scene in Step Brothers where it's like, did we just <laughs> become best friends? All right, so come back to Showtime. What was the charge? What was... The mandate that you laid out with Nevins when they said, all right, Vinny, we want to bring you in from CNN and really have you spearhead this unscripted initiative. What did they say they wanted to become over the next five years?
1: Well, I never really articulated it in that way, but I think David has always been very passionate about documentary. He's married to a documentary filmmaker. you know. He's very interested in documentary film and unscripted. I think that what was great, what was different from at CNN to Showtime is that I wasn't starting from zero, right? At CNN, there was no original series. There was no such thing as CNN Films at the time when I got there. So we started from scratch, but we started with great desire and great resources. At Showtime, there's a terrific foundation of documentaries and some unscripted. And really the conversation was, are you interested in really getting to the next level? Are we really interested in building the Showtime documentary films and series banners? And being on the same platform and stage with the competitors in... Premium cable and un- and now streaming, which I think has really grown in that space over the last few years, mm-hmm. and so that was kind of the idea. Is the potential was there? I mean, it's a premium cable platform. It's you know Showtime, yeah. And so um, you know, a guy got, got in there and very quickly, you know, started putting projects into work, started building up the um, the documentary films that were in production, uh, merging the acquisitions and and original productions operations so that we're on the same page and. And I think, you know, eventually the goal is to build a very strong premium brand that I think, for me at least, the the most important thing about Showtime documentary films is that it's not one-dimensional. What I mean by that, it's not just a, we produce these films, they end up on Showtime. Mm -hmm. It's more, produce these films, be platform agnostic. They should be in theaters. They should be on the streaming service. They should be available digitally. They should be available, obviously, on the network. So
0: really looking at yourselves as a studio... And not just a network, a studio that will get their content distributed in in many different ways and can live on different platforms, not just a network that has to have it on Showtime channel.
1: Well, that's always been my mindset. I mean, especially when it comes to the world of documentaries, documentary film, I think that this idea that there's a cannibalization of the audience, right? Like oh, you can't put it in theaters for 90 days because then nobody will watch it when it's on television. I think that's bullshit. I mean, first of all, the amount of people in the United States that actually will go to a movie theater to watch a documentary (laughs) is fairly minuscule, you know? I mean, it's like people in New York going to the Film Forum or Lincoln Center or something like that. So. I always feel that if those people have made the effort to go and watch the film and like it, they're probably going to at least tell a couple people about it and probably watch it again when it's on television. Right. But by and large, your mass audience really consumes a documentary film or series you know, on television mm-hmm. and now, I think, on demand streaming. Yeah. Like you look at some very successful programs that are more in that kind of serialized, limited series arc mm-hmm. of documentary like A Jinx, A Making of a Murderer, you know, uh, projects like that. I think that, by and large, people are not watching them in real time yeah. obviously you 've got super fans that are really right. you know they 're on the edge of their seat they 're suspenseful, they want to know what 's going on next. but a lot of people will just go on demand, watch, catch up, and then you know watch the rest of it or watch the whole thing in that way yeah so what 's great about being at a place like Showtime is that now you can do that. I think that serialized arc of documentary storytelling is a difficult thing to pull off mm-hmm. when you have. Commercials and you have scattered, you know, schedules and programming schedules and whatnot. I think that you actually almost need an on-demand aspect to wherever you work in order for people to really be able to uh, watch it completely, watch it fully, fully engaged. So I think that's an exciting part of it. You know, yeah. we tried it a couple times at CNN and it didn't work out.
0: Well, I would think that you know it has to be somewhat of an adjustment for you coming from CNN to Showtime. CNN felt like to me that you had created this position for yourself in this department at CNN where you didn't really have a lot of comp- direct competition in that the other news channels, they weren't making documentary series like this. They weren't going to the festivals and acquiring uh, you know, films like you were. They weren't rolling out shows with like Bourdain's and Morgan Spurlock's and Mike Rose. And your ratings are really only compared to Fox News and CNBC and MSNBC, right? It's not like the ratings are really... Getting compared to Showtime, HBO, or TNT, or any other cable network for that matter. Now you come into Showtime, and you have direct competition with HBO and Stars and Netflix and Amazon. What or, Stars? All kind of. <laughs> Just all kidding. Kind of, <laughs> <laughs> Carmen Zlotnick on line one, Chris Albrecht on Wait, line, that's on line they have two. That other Empire show, <laughs> on the, the yeah. but now you have direct competition yes. at Showtime. But am I wrong in thinking that it's no, no? It's you, a
1: very astute observation. It's actually it was a very it was an odd situation in some ways, which is to say that I personally, and I would say that the people that I, you know, my colleagues in the uh, in the original series and films group. I don't think we ever really saw ourselves in competition with Fox or MSNBC or any other news outlet, all. you yeah. know, and, and not even Vice to that extent or, the, or those right. kinds of extensions, you know, but I think that for us it was really being in that basic cable landscape and being in competition with places like Discovery, History, a and Nat Geo, you know, at that time. And I would say about five years ago when I first started at CNN, the idea was that everybody walked in the door – And had already been to, like, Discovery, History, A&E, Nachio. And what I realized really quickly was, okay, well, this is nuts. If I'm going to make – if we're trying to build a voice and build a brand in this space through CNN and I'm going to just keep making offers on the same thing that, like, six other networks are, then clearly we're not doing our jobs. Clearly we're not defining a voice. Clearly Mm -hmm. we're not defining a a more um, tailored batch of content for CNN that really fits our audience or will engage our audience. And so it was kind of a quick – uh, a learning experience of, you know, maybe we should be more targeted in how we develop and and build things. And um, but so I think that we personally, as a group, didn't feel in competition with the other news networks. But you bring up a very good point, which was our ratings were measured against the other news
0: only networks. against other news networks. Yeah,
1: so it was actually in some ways a good a benefit. Well, well yeah. Well,
0: well, now like, I find myself in this position uh, with United Shades of America, mm-hmm. which. You were the first person. An I excellent it to. show! Thank you, my man. And I, I just <laughs> want to thank you again. Like this doesn't always happen, and producers that listen to the show will understand this. Over a lunch, you were the first lunch I had when I started at Objective, and this was an idea that I just had with I wanted to do a show about race relations, but not do it in a heavy-handed manner. And I thought that we could fit it into the the lens and the format of the travel logs you guys had already done with Morgan and and, and Lisa Ling and and Bourdain uh, where I want to have an African American comedian and travel around the country, talk about different issues. And you immediately were like, that absolutely can work for us. Like, not only does that absolutely work for us, but I'm going to talk to Jeff. We should give you a development deal and try to talk about what talent would make sense. And then it turned out you guys were already having your own conversations with Kamau and you guys put us together and kind of gave us this arranged marriage. But I want to thank you because again, it was just me with a one pager and that, doesn't happen i mean i mean how many well, it was
1: more than a one page i mean it was you had a one pager in front of you but i mean it went over the course of a lot yes. of you talking about it and yeah. listen it's a good it was a great idea and and i think that uh you took it you gave it depth you you gave it a, a soul really this idea that i think a lot of people had which was hey i want to do a series about race relations but for you you had a very good angle into it and i think that the comedic you know element yeah. of a host was something that was really important because you know at least in my experience, I think when you talk about race or when you talk about race relations, there's a couple ways of doing it. But some of the most effective ways of doing it are always kind of letting the steam out of the kettle a little bit. Yeah. You do that with humor. And I think that, you know, I was a fan of Kamau Bell for a while. I watched Totally Biased when it was on FX. I thought that there was a good place for Kamau somewhere. And for us, we thought that maybe he would be a a, a great, diverse uh, and by diverse, I don't just mean by race, but by tone and, and, and approach yeah. and viewpoint exactly for a place like CNN. And I think that when your idea came in and you were talking about it, it just made a lot of sense. So you see,
0: you know, arranged marriages work. Yes, and Kamal made it much <laughs> uh, smarter than I, I ever uh, could have made it. Um, You're selling
1: yourself short. You guys did a fantastic job without
0: him. But, uh, you know, now I find myself in this position where I get the ratings reports and the ratings come in and on a like cable level yeah the ratings for our show not not that impressive when you consider like the vast majority of cable networks and and the ratings that come in but then they send us the ratings compared to the people they care about which is fox news and all the other news networks and we're winning our time slot every sunday so like (laughs) the numbers will come in and i'm used to just looking at like cable as a whole for our ratings and i'm like OK, well, you know, we're not we're not getting a million people an episode, you yeah, know, just
1: take the slap on the back. <laughs> and, then, right? and, then,
0: and then they send me the, the email from like your research. And they're like, congrats. You guys won your seventh <laughs> Sunday in a row for the time slot. And I was like, oh, okay, that's all that matters. I will
1: say, though, that at CNN, I think one of the things that is undervalued is the QM rating. I mean, mm-hmm. like they run it enough times and enough people eventually at some point in time. Yeah. Watch some, if not all of it. I think, you know, at the end of the day, you see a big number, like Blackfish, for instance, that film that we did at CNN Films. Fantastic film, riveting, great, great um, issue to take on, great storytelling – I think cumulatively over the amount of airings, maybe 25 to 30 initial screenings of that film on CNN, I think they reached like 25 million people or something like that. Some ridiculous number of people that at least sampled it, like watched a few minutes of it, if not the whole thing. But I think that that's where CNN is a powerful platform is that occasionally you have some content that really crosses over. And when it does, it's like wildfire. Did you
0: acquire that that. or did you guys – it was the, from the first beginning.
1: acquisition we made under CNN Films. Wow. It was at Sundance Film Festival. And I can still remember being in that theater. It was the Temple Theater, which is a little bit outside of the main drag in Park City. And we went in there. It was a night. We started watching it, and like 15 minutes into it, I was essentially I essentially got up and like walked out. Went looking for the sales agent. I was like, "This is going to work for us. Let's get it." And I can still remember at the end of the film, walk, walking back into the lobby and seeing all the buyers that were kind of hovering around, thinking about making offers. And I remember that there was uh, there was this one woman in the lobby too, who was kind of you know going around and talking to different people and talking about the, you know partnerships, and eventually p- approached us instead of. You know, would we be interested in partnering with her? And we were trying to buy, you know, all the rights and maybe partner with a theatrical distributor. But that person was Lisa Nishimura from Netflix. Oh so my now, gosh. fast forward, what was that, like probably like five years ago, fast forward to the last Sundance I was at. I think I came out of another film in that same lobby. And who's the person that everybody was surrounding was right. Lisa at Netflix. Yeah. Because, and that kind of just shows you, I think, how far Netflix has come in the past five years, in particular in Unscripted. I mean, now it's like a you know they have a voracious appetite for it
0: okay so so kind of explain to me how this festival circuit can work now with with deal making so you go and you see what you think is the next blackfish right and you see Lisa in the lobby do you approach Lisa and go hey we can make this a a JV where we get The cable rights and you get, you know, VOD or whatever rights. No. no. So there's no partnering. (laughs) There's no partnering with...
1: There is partnering. I mean, I actually believe that it's important and I think that it's advantageous to a place like Showtime and a place like CNN to partner. I think that my colleagues in the premium cable space and now in the streaming space um, put what I think is a little bit too high of a value on them being the premier destination for this film. Now... I think that that's fine. You know, you can do it that way. But what I've learned is with the filmmakers that I like to work with and the people that I think are the best storytellers in that space, you know, they covet and they want a theatrical exhibition for the film, whether it's a full one for 90 days, whether it's a short one, whatever it might be. So I've always found it to be, like I said, advantageous to partner with a distributor, like a Magnolia picture, Mm -hmm. you know, or someplace like that. Lionsgate we've partnered with in the past. Um, I don't think that there's Those any scenario the, with partnerships with Netflix or with Amazon or that you know obviously with h b o right so you know I think that it has been that flexibility and that ability to make deals like that and to create each each deal according to the film and what the filmmaker wants and how we get it um has made us. Has made us more successful in the marketplace, and I think for Showtime, it's going to continue that way because I feel very—I I feel it's a very important part of the whole thing, and I think it gives us a leg up over some of our competitors who sure. tend to spend, you know, two to three times more money than we do right. on these projects.
0: <clears throat> Netflix, Amazon.
1: Um, so the, distrib- <laughs> like <an> arms <laughs> the
0: distribution deals you make then with the theatrical distributors—that is after you have made your deal and wine and dined those producers and directors at Sundance? And once you have the rights, then you go find a distributor? Are you trying to find a distributor to get the rights in the first place?
1: It's it's different each time, right? So I think that here's how I would approach Sundance, right? So in the bubble of Sundance, Sundance is a crazy environment when you get – especially with documentaries because what I find is – the demand almost outweighs the supply of yep. what are those top-tier films that everybody wants? What's the breakout hit? Like Blackfish was a breakout hit. Um, this year I would say Wiener was a breakout hit. You right. Know? So in a lot of cases, um, we, networks and some distributors, will get a look at some of the films in advance. Right. Um, and sometimes the bidding and the bit deal making starts at that phase. Before the
0: screening even happens.
1: Like with Wiener, for instance. We bought that film in advance of its premiere at Sundance. And now I actually believe that had we bought it in the in the environment of the premiere in Park City, we probably would have had to pay way more money. You know, right. but you take a risk early on something because you like it, you think it makes sense for you. But you know, the I guess the, the real hot and crazy deal making sessions are when something premieres People weren't really expecting it to be as successful as it was. Now it's like a feeding frenzy. Right. Now it's like everybody's on this film. It's It premiered well, got a standing ovation. It's now the hot title for that day. Now you've got everybody going to condos in the middle of the night and making deals that go all through the night. So all these stories that you hear are actually true, right. you know, and some are pretty legendary. Like you've heard the stories of Harvey Weinstein and those guys. I was at Sundance this like...
0: <laughs> last year. I saw you there because shades shades premiered there. That's right. <clears throat> and, uh, I was at the Weinstein uh, NFC AFC football party, which is the only party I really care about. Uh, pretty much, yeah. While I'm up there, I, I got to watch the game. That's games. what I love about you. And uh, I'm sitting there next to David Glasser, who runs Harvey's company. Right. And of course, like in the middle of the game, somebody comes over to him and whispers in his ear, he's like, I got I to get going. I got I to go watch something. Yep. And him and Harvey had to leave their party, go downstairs, go on a laptop like how I pitch my shows at real screen, you go on a laptop and watch an advanced copy of something with right. headphones on, and they were gone for like 30 minutes and then like came back upstairs, and David was like, ah, it was awful. It was awful. So-and-so's going to bid on it. They're <laughs> overbidding. It's awful. It's trash. Right, yep. yeah.
1: right. And, and it's
0: that's literally what it is, right? It is.
1: it is like that. I mean, I, I, I can't even... Im- imagine that I've actually stayed all the way through any party at Sundance before and maybe like toward the end of it after we've like we're flat broke and have spent all our money for the weekend but um but in general it is always you always are on you're on in the morning you're on right after a screening you're on late at night like if you are in the mix and you're going for films, you know, that's one thing. Then there's the other aspect of it, too, which is if you're bringing a film to Sundance. So let's right. say you've produced a film, you're bringing it in, and now you want to sell rights against it. So now right. you're, you're in a whole different position, which is now you're sitting in the theater thinking, I really fucking hope people like this film. Right. And then we start getting offers. And then you're fielding the offers and then you're working right. with the filmmakers. So it's been fun to be on both sides of that process. Right. Um, but I can tell you, like, when I tell family and friends that I'm going to Sundance, people are like, oh, boo-hoo, you're going to Sundance, just get to watch movies the whole time. It's just so not like that when, <laughs> when you're actually in it, in the thick of it.
0: All right, so I want, I want to go back a little bit, okay, because we've covered CNN, we've covered Showtime. I want to kind of hear, hear the story of how you got to where you are now. So you started in news, right? I did. But where did you, you – you went to college where? Were you Harvard guy?
1: No way. Where were you? I'm a man of the people, salt of the earth. I went to UMass. went yep,
0: to UMass. Yeah. Okay. UMass. What did your dad do?
1: My father was an engineer. And your mom? My mother was a small business owner.
0: Okay. And what, what nationality descent are, are you? My doing?
1: parents are both from India. Okay. And uh, I was born in New Jersey. Okay. My brother was born in Kansas City. I have an older brother, three years older than me. He was born there because my father came in the 60s to go to Kansas State. Okay, and then went to grad school there. My mother came and joined him. It's all very much like uh, the namesake. Just go read that book. Um, but so we, I grew up in New Jersey, um, South Jersey, right outside of Philadelphia, as we discussed a little bit in the beginning. I used to always say I was close enough to Veterans Stadium that I could get there faster than people that lived in Center City Philadelphia. <laughs> so I was a rabid Philly sports fan. Um, but growing up, you know, I don't, I don't think that I necessarily thought that I would. That this wasn't, you know, the map of how I was gonna
0: no, live by, my life. Raised by an engineer father.
1: <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't think so. But my parents were not your typical kind of Indian immigrant parents who I think could be very strict and can just basically say, You should be a doctor or you should be a lawyer, you know what I mean? So in my case I think it was more you know, they they kinda needed to see what I was gonna evolve into. So I would say probably first thing that i thought i was gonna do was work at saturday night live okay i was a I was like the tv junkie of my of my family like i was the kid that would sneak down in the middle of the night because like my parents didn't even realize we had hbo at some point when it first you know started and i remember coming down in the middle of the night and watching like uh like steve mcqueen movies and clint eastwood movies and like going back upstairs and like rehearsing the lines and kind of walking a little bit taller the next day at school <laughs> I was always enamored by that kind of tough guy
0: character, <laughs> the Indian you know. Steve McQueen. Right exactly, because good, it was cool.
1: it wasn't exactly like, you know, a lot of the um, the imagery I had in my life, sure. you know. So, I was very drawn to that stuff, but Did was, your
0: parents enjoy American television? My
1: parents you know my mom did. You know what I used to watch with my mom all the time was Dallas. Sure. Knott's Landing. Oh yeah. Falcon Crest. Of course. She was I'll, into all of those.
0: What about Remington Steel?
1: Remington Steel, I don't oh no. Moonlighting. She loved oh, Moonlighting. Sure. Not Remington Steel. So I kind of started to watch a lot of those things with her. Um, but so I was a real TV junkie. And yeah. and so I watched I watched everything. And but Saturday Night Live was the thing that I waited for every week. And this was like the golden era. This is like Eddie Murphy, this is Dan Aykroyd, this is that whole crew. And I'm very excited because you know we announced recently that we're going to do this John Belushi film, and it's now like oh great, I get to go back in time to that time. By the way, I'm right
0: there with you. By (laughs) the way, as a child, I discovered SNL, the original cast. You know, obviously very late. I was born in '81, but we had the best of tapes at my house. So we had the best of Chevy Chase, we had the best of Belushi, Akroy Gilda, and I would uh, I would obsess over the best of Chevy tape for whatever reason, (laughs) and I would practice his opening falls. In my room. Oh, man. Because that was the shtick. In, yeah. Like, the first season that he always opened the show with a fall. Yeah. And then said, uh, live from New York. And yeah, I went on from there. And I was equally obsessed with Sound <laughs> Night Live. But at that point, it was more headed towards the 90s, where it was the Sandler, Hartman. Also a Spain. great era. Oh, yeah. a great era. Yeah. Dana Carvey, Mike Myers, that whole era. But I loved the original cast. And the, uh, even the second year when Murray joined, because people forget that Chevy was only the first season. Right. The, the Bill Murray years as well with the lounge. Nick, Phenomenal. Nick the Lounge singer. Phenomenal. I mean, it's, to this
1: day, if Bill Murray appears in anything, I watch it. Yes. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, yes. I probably went and watched The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou like 14 times because of Bill Murray, just because it was Do you have so thoughts? much Bill Murray. Do
0: you have thoughts on the Ghostbusters reboot?
1: Not a lot. I like the original. But I, I will definitely kind of, you know, I'll definitely watch the new version of it. But yeah, I haven't really paid too much
0: attention. To... I have my, I have, I have my. Uh, conflict, you have your thoughts.
1: What are, what is conflict your conflict of
0: emotions on it? Well, okay, I, I have to get past the fact that I'm an original fan, right? And that I don't think the studio really cares about appealing to the original fans. My case in point is how many women in your life, Vinny. Have you ever talked to about movies, and you ask them, what is your favorite movie, and that woman says, Ghostbusters?
1: Uh, probably none. None. <laughs> I yeah, love the – Don't fem- be sexist. Uh, no, I'm, I'm not trying to be on sexist. On your own podcast.
0: That's the thing. I'm conflicted because <laughs> I love the female empowerment of it. There aren't enough good roles for women in Hollywood. I, I like there that. There
1: you go. Put that disclaimer in there. Totally.
0: I, I, I totally appreciate it, but at the same time, it doesn't really appeal to the core fans no. Of Ghostbusters, who are but how dudes. many
1: reboots do appeal to core fans? I mean, at this point, yeah. it's that it's that mind-numbing, endless chase of the millennials. Really, it's like, right. well, who do they like? You yeah. know, what's the new person? What's the new cast that they would, that would appeal to this generation? So, I don't really feel like when people do the reboots that they're actually really thinking about it. Yeah. I
0: got, I, I have to reserve, I have to reserve my opinion until I see it. But <laughs> from the trailer, it doesn't look like this current cast in this reboot have any prior knowledge of the original cast. Now if you had told me in the trailer that this movie are, you know, Kristen Wiig and and, and Melissa McCarthy are these nerd nerdy girls mm-hmm. that grew up in New York and watched Peter Vankman and Egon and Ray Stantz take down the Marshmallow Man and save New York and ever <laughs> since then they've been obsessed with paranormal activity. Then I'm, I'm all in. Then you're in. Because it's, it's a nod and a tip of the cap to the original. But from the trailer, it doesn't look like these current characters have any knowledge of the pre-existing characters 30 years ago.
1: I think you've given the studio publicist the playbook on how to get you to into the into the theater. I've
0: clearly spent way too much time thinking about this.
1: <laughs> now, if your daughter was a little bit older, because I know your daughter's very young, but if she were a little older and you yeah. could take her to Ghostbusters, you would. You'd go like oh, opening absolutely. weekend, right? And it'd be
0: the coolest thing, just like the— And that's
1: how they're getting the original
0: fans. Just like the Star Wars reboot. Right. That right. you know that new character, she is now one of the coolest characters in the history of the Star Wars universe. Right. and you have a generation of women now that are going to grow up on that, yeah. and realize that their characters they can look up to in film aren't just always you know the quirky Reese Witherspoon in a, a rom com. Right. you have badass lightsaber, you know, <laughs> Ghostbuster, you know, <laughs> blaster wielding women that can take down paranormal. Activity. Kick ass.
1: Um,
0: so yes, I was a TV junkie.
1: Um, but one of the things that my father always watched and made me watch was sixty minutes and so, as a kid i always I was always around news and hearing my father talk about it, and you know he would You know, that whole thing about don't talk about politics at dinner parties and things like that. My father didn't give a shit about that. Like (laughs) it was just always like an endless – like an argument with somebody. Right. So I kind of had that in my mind and I think I got a little bit involved in like my school newspaper. And then I remember I went to college. I studied political science and and eventually was led to uh, – I don't even know how I ended up with it. But I got an opportunity to be an intern at ABC News. Got it. And I ended up in New York in the one summer after my junior year in college. And in some ways, I fell in love with as much, as much with the news, television news business as I did with New York. Because mm. growing up in South Jersey and Philadelphia, the funny thing is people would always say, well, didn't you go to New York all the time? We never went to New York. We never oh. even thought about New York. Like, New York was, I'd probably been there maybe two or three times. Right. Philadelphia was our city, Got you know? And in some ways, I probably was in Washington, D.C. more than I was in New York. So... My brother was in law school at the time in New York, and I remember going – we stayed in this crappy little studio apartment together. and um, But I really just fell That's in love awesome. with the energy of the city and New York, and then I remember thinking, like, I've got to live here. And so it all kind of fell in line with one another. And then from there, I mean, I was at ABC News at this amazing time. I mean, what I think of is kind of the tail end of the best part of network news, when network news was still king, mm-hmm. when cable was still kind of – just emerging. emerging, growing, you know, um, CNN was on the air, but it wasn't the well, power. Pe- people you know.
0: still tune in the broadcast for the nightly news.
1: Absolutely. It was yeah. Dan Rather. It was Tom Brokaw. It was Peter Jennings. And that I really was the golden era. It was the golden era. And, you know, and I think that once those three left those chairs, then I think that the shift became, first of all, there were new anchors that came in, but forget that. The shift went from evening news to morning news. Yep. You know, there had always been with those people in those chairs, a real dominant presence and voice that drew you to the flagship show of the network was always the evening news program and now that's not the case now it's mm-hmm. today show it's good morning america cbs more cbs this morning so i kind of caught the tail end of that i was there for a while i was there after 911 i spent mm-hmm. a lot of time overseas i had the opportunity to be uh, peter jennings producer the last 3 years of his life wow. and so I will always say that those three years were probably the best three years I'll ever have in my career, but mm. um, but it's not like I can go back and do that again. So I think eventually, though, it runs its course. It drains you. It's a twenty four hour, seven day a week kind of a job. Like you 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 look at your BlackBerry, you know, because at the time it wasn't really iPhones. we had BlackBerry, <laughs> but you, your BlackBerry was the last thing you looked at at night, and it was the first thing you picked up in the morning. And yep. it was always like, what did I miss? Right. Like that was the mindset. I've been asleep for six hours. What did I miss in the middle of the night, you know? Um, And inevitably, you missed a couple things, you know? And and also, you'd get called. You know, you'd be at somebody's wedding on a Saturday. You get a phone call. Yeah. And you'd be like, after a while, the question was just, where am I going? You know, like, what happened? Kind of a thing. But that burns you out. And then eventually, because I was already at ABC and Disney and ESPN, you know, it's all one thing. So... I was able to sc- cross over and go over to ESPN and work in development Got for it. the first so you, time. Gotcha. So you were able to from make production the to jump
0: because of the synergy among those companies. You heard about an opening. Was it in Bristol?
1: It was in New York. Okay. It was for the content development group. And there wasn't really an opening. I think I probably worked it over the course of six months and became, you know, kind of opened a position within one group that I really wanted to work at. Um, but I had been doing some work back and forth with them because I'd been running the evening the weekend evening news. So we shared some resources and everything. So I had some relationships with the people at ESPN, but going over there was terrific in that it was a a breath of fresh air to I think step away from that, the chaos of network news, but also what a great job. Like you're in content development, you're creating new shows and films and all this other stuff. And when you think about it, if you're a rabid sports fan like I was, yeah. you're just programming for yourself. It's right. like, would I watch this? Yeah,
0: I'd watch this. I'd love this. So what kind of shows are we talking here?
1: Um, when I was there, you know, the group that I was in was content development. And so there were a lot of us there. And in fact, there were there are shows that came out of that group and there are people that came out of that group that if you are knowledgeable about the sports media landscape, like people like Jamie Horowitz, who now runs sure. Fox Sports, Connor Shell who's still there but was really – I think the brain's and right. John Dahl behind thirty for thirty, so by the, when I got there, it was a very uh, exciting time for that group. I mean thirty for thirty had just launched. you know we were in the first thirty of those. We launched something called Year of the Quarterback where we were able to do all this other content we started building i think the the documentaries started to become a bigger part of what mm. we were doing over there. Um, and studio shows came out of that group, you know? Oh, really? Which predates me, but Pardon the Interruption came out of that group, you know? When I was there, Sports Nation had been developed out of that group. That was actually Jamie Horowitz's uh, project that he oversaw, that he eventually went to go run and move up to Bristol. Hmm. But so somewhere in the middle of all of that, I ended up moving to L.A., and that was probably about five, six years ago or whatever it might have been. And um, I'd always, you know, been enamored with – the West Coast in California, not so much like the entertainment industry, but this idea of having grown up on the cold and you know sometimes gray East Coast. You it really had the best
0: situation, sunny ever. California. You find yourself at ESPN. <laughs> you don't have to leave New York. You don't have to go live in Bristol. Right. And then, how did you talk them into moving you out to LA? Well, it was always
1: an idea that they wanted to move some of the people from our group out to LA. The operation in LA was just Sports Center. You know, they had this right. studio. They had this great facility over by the Staples Center. But you know we I think that the idea was could we make it more of a creative hub for e s p n so they sent some of the content development group out there, and it was great, but it didn't last long and then it was, okay, we want everybody to come to Connecticut, and so for me, it was you know Bristol, Connecticut is not really the kind of place I see myself <laughs> living for an extended period of time um and you're married
0: at this point,
1: I'm married at this point, we're having another kid at this point. And my wife is like falling in love with California. It's like right. she does no desire to move back to yeah. the East Coast. So, um, so at that point, I ended up talking to a couple other places, and and CNN came up, and that was. That was a great opportunity because like I said before, there was great desire and there was great resources, but there was no there wasn't a know how really. Mm-hmm. So they hired a couple of us to come in there and really supported us and and you know, we were successful enough to build those brands.
0: Oh, staying at ESPN for a second, the thirty for thirties, were there specific thirty for thirties that you spearheaded while you were there?
1: No, I worked on a couple of films that were outside of thirty for thirty. Okay. So I never thirty for thirty again was that was that was Bill Simmons, Connor Shell, John Dahl, like that group of people and I think they did a great job with it. But we did a few films that fell outside of that. And so I did a couple more on the football side. So we okay. did the Marinovich project, the sure. football Todd Marinovich um, we worked with the nfl films to do a film called the brady 6 about the six absolutely. quarterbacks drafted before tom brady
0: absolutely watched that so absolutely. programs
1: like that yeah i mean i in the end i was probably at espn for a short period of time like maybe 3 years and as you know in the world of development and production 3 years is like like four projects basically but um, but i thought espn was a great place because i learned a lot you know having had spent my entire Career at that point in one place, right? And understanding that one place, it was this ability to go to another area of our of Disney, but you know, another area of television and sports right. media, and kind of really learning more about the operation. And so, you know, people can go read the book about ESPN. Are, you,
0: are you still a diehard ESPN viewer?
1: I think you kind of have to be, right? If you're a sports yeah. fan, have um, you tried?
0: Have you tried to watch the Fox Sports programming? At I've all? tried.
1: I've tried. I
0: have too. I've made my way over there. A couple of times. I just don't think I've landed on anything yet that no. makes me come NBC
1: Sports Network, no, you know, Fox Sports, no. I still watch the but even, you know, when it comes to Sports Center now, like I, I think I find myself watching so much less Sports Center. I feel like in this day and age, I just grab my phone. I probably spend more time on like Bleacher Report than anything yeah. else. Like it's team amazing. streams. This like just, this, just, you get everything. You get articles, you get tweets, you get everything. It right, just right hit there me the place. other
0: day that You know, ESPN basically took highlights away from local news broadcasts, basically, and now the internet is taking away highlights from ESPN. Right, right. It's unbelievable. I'm watching highlights the second a game is over or the second after a play happens. Yeah. It's immediately out there on all these different platforms.
1: But if you think about it, you know, I think that there's a little bit of a, oh, well, is you know, dying. It's the going the way of the Dinosaur. I don't really. I mean, I think the the brand equity of SportsCenter oh, sure. and what they do is still tremendous. And I also think that, you know, ESPN was smart enough to really build a mobile business, too. Right. I mean, mobile business is fantastic for news and sports. Like, you look at what CNN has been able to do in it and what ESPN has been able to do in it. I think if you're if you're trying to find out what happened like you heard like some something happened and what's the first place you're going to go you're going to go on e- CNN right, right. you're going to be like what's going on breaking news that's what they're known for now and i think ESPN is still in that kind of highlights breaking news area too like i don't think that you go to ESPN if you want some real in-depth piece about right. you know concussions in the NFL or this player or that player you know i think i don't really think anybody's reading sports illustrated anymore but i think you have shows like you know, sixty minutes of sports. There's that other sports right. show on HBO that I don't remember. Sure,
0: Inside Sports. It's Inside well, Sports. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I don't, don't know.
1: With, with Greg Gumbel or something, <laughs>
0: <laughs> throwing shade at the competitors. Uh, can you answer a question for me as a sports fan? Sure. I do watch ESPN, and I am I am mildly obsessed with John Gruden. You watch those Gruden quarterback camps that he does every yes. year with those incoming uh, quarterbacks that are about to be drafted, right? Right.
1: It started when I was there. Oh, did it really? Yeah, it actually originated as part of the year of the quarterback project. Okay. And then it carried, you know, had a life of its own beyond that. So this is
0: perfect. So they will do like eight episodes where Gruden brings in all these different quarterbacks and works with them individually and basically grills them, right? And he goes through their tape and he asks them questions. He puts them up on the board, has them draw up plays. Okay, that that I all understand. (laughs) Then he takes them out to the field. Right. And there's just a bunch of grown-ass men that Gruden just has running routes like who are these people like is he just like it's a great question actually like is he is he like this like kind of rich guy disconnected from reality <laughs> where he still thinks he's a coach and he just ha- he just pays these guys to show up and run routes on air every day?
1: Well, I would imagine that once you're a coach in the NFL, you're always kind of a coach in the NFL. Even if you look at those guys on television at the NFL Network or ESPN or whatever it is, right. their perspective is completely from right. the coach's perspective. They even call them coach on the air yes, at the time. Yes, I know. Right? But those guys that you see running those routes and doing all that stuff, those guys are people that are playing in, say, the Arena League, yes. They're people that were are, are trying to walk on a team. They might be college receivers from a local college. I get the
0: impression though, that just, just knows these people. Yeah, I don't know. I get the impression that they're not just there for the purposes of when they <laughs> film. Like I get the impression they're like there all the oh, time. Oh, they just like hang out in yes, his that, office. Like literally, that, that, <laughs> the groom's just like writing up plays on a napkin. and Like, hey, I want to run this with the boys, and just has them there at his disposal. It's like the equivalent of in the jerk. I know you'll get this reference <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: in the jerk where he finally gets rich and he has his own disco hall with his own disco dance. Answers. That's what I feel like. This is reverted, <laughs> Where he just pays these guys to be there at his disposal.
1: I will say he is a hard-working man. Yes. John Gruden is a hardworking man. Clearly, I mean, John. Like I believe Gruden shows up at that office in like when it's still dark out yes. at like four thirty or five o'clock in the morning. I
0: feel like he still, still watches tape. Yeah, I feel like he still goes through the same routine.
1: I believe he does. That I mean, he always did. And that's why he's so good on Monday Night Football. Is that he he prepares for it like he's preparing for a game. He prepares for it from that coach's perspective and. And I just think that that's why he was instantly successful in that role as being basically the new version of John Madden.
0: What are your thoughts on Mike Tirico leaving ESPN?
1: I think that that's a shame. I mean, I think that team of Gruden and Tarico is a terrific yeah. broadcast team. This is you a big know, deal. One of the that, best. This is
0: a big deal that I don't think a lot of people seem to be talking no. about. No. Is that somebody is replacing Mike yeah, as... And Who is that guy? They haven't made know. it. No,
1: they're, they're, I, apparently, they have some guy that's replacing Tariko who I've oh, never did they even already, heard of.
0: Did they announce it, or is that still just rumored to be?
1: I don't know. I, I thought that they had announced it already.
0: Okay, because there was definitely some down years when they were figuring out the booth
1: did you not like the dennis miller the dennis miller experiment, experiment. <laughs> it's the tony
0: kornheiser experiment i mean the,
1: all right which one did you like better in the booth
0: who else with jaws was in the booth for a while with gruden
1: don't say anything bad about no jaws. i love jaws he was a philadelphia Eagles. No, i know
0: he's your philly guy
1: he's a hall of famer i
0: love jaws but why wasn't the booth big enough for both jaws and gruden all right but way. who
1: did you like better in the booth dennis miller or tony kornheiser because they essentially played the same role in the booth
0: i think i liked dennis miller more Because I knew what I was getting with Dennis Miller. Like, I wasn't expecting him to give me great sports insight. Right. I was just expecting him to give me, like, shtick.
1: Just to be irreverent. With
0: Tony, I was more disappointed because I am a huge Kornheiser and Wilbon fan from PTI. And it was disappointing to me that Tony didn't fit in in the booth. So there was a letdown. I couldn't be let down by Dennis Miller because I didn't expect much. <laughs> yeah, a low bar. Yeah, I just kind of like – he's just there to tell jokes, right? Like he's not actually there to you know, yeah. teach me anything. Yeah. I was more disappointed that it didn't work with Tony because I'm such a Tony fan. But you just could kind of tell that some people work in the booth and right. some people are better in a studio. And some people are better just as you know, roving reporters.
1: Right, right. Sideline reporters. Give right. Me color Like Tony Siragusa. Sir whatever his name is. The Goose. Yeah. On Fox. I love that that guy's down by the field. Yeah. You know, like if there's a scrum or fight or something, he's like right up in it, giving you the detail. Can we find a way
0: to get, is it Gus Johnson?
1: Gus Johnson. Who does the
0: great play-by-play. He does the great play-by-play. And he was great for March Madness for years. Yes. Can we find a way to get him hired by ESPN, (laughs) and get him out of his Fox duo, whoever he's under a deal with right now? Well,
1: I think that ESPN's, you know, it's going to be a tricky time for them again. I think that they really found a rock solid duo in Tirico and Gruden. And my understanding is that they really got along really well with one another and great respect right. for one another. So I don't know what it's going to be like now. It's an
0: interesting time. I feel like we are watching a new era of ESPN unfold because you have Tariko leaving and now they're starting to drop rumors about Berman finally leaving. It feels like they're kind of understanding that it's time to bring in some fresh faces. Right. Uh, and I don't know how I feel about that. I'm kind of back and forth on it. I don't know. Because I'm not saying I'm the biggest Berman fan in the world, but there is something about his... Were you an
1: Olbermann fan?
0: Uh, I was more was always more of a Dan Patrick guy. Right. I actually didn't become an Olbermann fan until the non-sports stuff. Okay. Until he got to MSNBC. Right. right? Then I kind of like got into Keith, but I was always more of a Dan guy.
1: Um, Dan's still solid. I mean, the versatility of Dan Patrick is incredible. Like He can go and do his Dan Patrick show and... It's fun and it's rowdy. It's a romp through the morning with that team of people, with the the guys he's got. And then he can get all polished and sit behind the desk and do football night in America. And he's still like a master of highlights. And,
0: you you know. Speaking of which, of that same like fraternity of Sports Center guys. I love Rich Eisen, by the way. Right. Like I've met Rich personally, like the nicest, sweetest guy in real life. But you've got to listen to the Craig Kilborn podcast (laughs) with uh, Bill Simmons. Bill had Kilborn on. Wow, um, a couple months ago. That's a duo. You completely understand why Kilborn has like been in hiding for the last few years. <laughs> like literally, Vinny, literally three minutes into the interview, you are like worried for for Craig. Like, you are wondering, is he all there? Is he losing it? Did, had he always lost Did it? Did he show
1: up drunk?
0: Did he show up drunk? He kind of, like, half jokes about doing his uh, late night show drunk sometimes, but I don't think he was half joking. Um, it, it, you've got to listen to this. As a right. fan of that era of right? and, like, the original crew, you've... Got to listen to this podcast because I think even Simmons is finding himself wondering what he got himself into because Kilbourne is incapable of staying on any topic, right? At any point, he's like, all over the place. He's all over the map.
1: Well, what I've actually found interesting also about now versus those days at ESPN is now going to Showtime and being involved not just in documentary and unscripted, but also in sports programming. Is now you're seeing this whole other landscape of sports, which I think you know weighs heavily in boxing. Like boxing is a new, yeah. I mean, boxing is a sport that I've always been a fan of, but I've never really understood the inner workings of the deals and the mm-hmm. fights and kind of how that all structures out and the contracts with the different fighters. Um, and so that's been a lot of fun. And you see a really healthy competition, I'd say, right. between HBO and Showtime in that realm of sports. Um, but I think it's a, it's an exciting time also of studio programming and, yeah. and premium cable. And Now, Showtime, we haven't done a lot of studio programming. I think that, you know, we've got a couple – Irons in the fire, a couple of things in development, but you look at, you know, the success of some of that in the like with John Oliver and uh, obviously with Bill Maher, and now I think you're starting to see it in sports. Like Simmons has got his show coming up. I think right. that there's, you know, high expectations for that. But um, but it was always a very interesting thing to figure out where he was going to end up after all of that.
0: And you touched on boxing. I mean, obviously, twenty four seven really put a lot of these boxing pay per views on the map. And now with Pacquiao you know, at the end of his career and Mayweather at the end of his career and no real mainstream heavyweight division that our country really cares about by comparisons to 15 years ago, 20 years ago and Lennox Lewis. And I think we're Holy coming Field- back.
1: I'm definitely a big boxing fan. Now, I kind of see the MMA as a little bit more… You know, UFC, MMA is a little bit uh, more in the realm of kind of the old school wrestling. There's a lot of theater (laughs) to the whole thing. And, you know, boxing to me is still a very – can be a very statesman-like sport, kind of an old school sport of kings. It's the
0: sweet science. It's the sweet science. And I think
1: that when you look at the landscape of boxing right now, I think that there are people that will say, oh, well, boxing's dying. All the stars are gone. Pacquiao and Mayweather are leaving. Like, who cares anymore? I actually take a very different approach, which is to say I think it's a very exciting time in boxing right now because now you're going to see all these new people rise up Triple and become G. stars. Yeah. Triple G, you know, even in the heavyweight class now with Anthony Joshua out of London, Deontay Wilder. Like, I think that there are some pretty big – you know, there's great heavyweights that are coming up. I think there'll be some good, match- you know, matchups there. And then you're seeing it with some of the other, the legacies of people in the middle classes with, like, you know, right. with Mayweather and Pacquiao and everything. But also, like, I don't think people thought Mayweather was going to rise to become the star that he became. Sure. You know, I think that these people kind of all pop up, like Oscar de la Hoya popped up, like all these other people pop up. So I think we will get to a place now where we'll have some new stars that will come in. And you see it already with, you know... Uh, Gennady Gol- Golovkin and right. you know Triple G, who you just referenced, and some of the other fighters in that class. But I think you're going to start to see some real strong heavyweights coming into into play, and some big. I want to go back to the old school, yeah. heavyweights fighting in Vegas matchups. Look, I, you know? I, I
0: would not argue against the merits of boxing, you know, for the sport itself. But I do think, though, if you took a survey of women and men below the age of 30, and you had them rank their favorite sports. I think it'd be NFL, NBA. Oh, totally. MMA. Oh, yeah. I, I think UFC Absolutely. has become the third most popular sport in our country for people below 30. And then you look 15 years into the future, you know that's now 45 years old and below. Right. And the numbers are dwindling on baseball every year. The World Series numbers are usually down. Right. MMA, out of nowhere, has come from fringe sport, wwe adjacent sport, to now, I think it's going to be in ten years, like the bona fide third most popular sport in our country.
1: But I, I and I completely agree. with you. I think that a lot of it, and it's good for you know the purpose of this conversation too. But a lot of it is rooted in storytelling, right? Yes. Like the thing is, football. They're great stories. They're great characters. They're all American, right? Yeah. Like it's all you know. The problem, with, you know, the issue, really, with baseball is that it's, there's been a globalization of baseball, right? Mm-hmm. Like some of the best players you know, get up there. Some of the greatest pitchers in Major League Baseball go up for their press conferences afterwards with translators, right? right? There's a there's a degree of separation there that I think is lost. Mm. And I think that, you know, with football, they're amazing characters. You build stories. You have things like hard knocks. You have, you know, in college football now we do a season with, you know, so you really get in there into the programs, the coaches, the players, the owners. Like right. Jerry Jones is a huge character. Um, so – I think in that in that same thing with the NBA like in basketball you've got these great stories like one of the highest rated films Showtime has ever done in the documentary space was Iverson. Yeah. And it's not to you know I mean I, I think it was a good film but I think it was more Allen Iverson the character and Allen Iverson the story that really drew people to that to that film. So I think that when it comes to um to to boxing also like i think with the mma there's a good story there there are really great characters there you know they're very outspoken even dana white is outspoken even the yeah. head of the organization is so I think that with baseball in particular, they need to build the storytelling. They need to kind of go back and tell some of the more glory stories, not just Jackie Robinson, but get to like Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, get to some of the more contemporary stories and start to re-engage fans in that way. Like I think that that's where there's a loss. And I think that the same thing on boxing, right? Like you referenced the 24-7, the all-access programs that we do. The purpose of it, really is to invest you in the characters ahead of the big match, exactly. right so you start watching it, you're like, "Oh, that guy's interesting, or that guy works out in the middle of the night, or he's you know what a loud mouth or I hope that guy gets knocked right. out. You start to develop opinions about these people and then you want to see how it finishes right and I think that that's lacking in some of these other sports, and I think boxing needs to do more of it, you know, I mm-hmm. think it's incumbent upon us, I think it's incumbent upon you know some of the other networks that support boxing but to tell the stories of these new fighters and the rise of these new characters um and really with baseball I think that they have an issue I think that they really do need to reinvent the their league a little bit around some of their superstars yeah and even some of the anti-heroes you know like oh, that's for sure. the beauty it's like at the end of the day and this is a big Showtime thing right like for Showtime one of the, what I realized is one of the reasons why I was always drawn to it is because I like the – I like the characters. I like the – they're antiheroes. They're slightly subversive. They are – all the protagonists, even in the scripted shows, what I like to say about them is they all have dirt on them. Like, you know, right. Ray Donovan murders murdered a priest, you know? Like, oh, so that's a spoiler for anyone who doesn't say – but, um, you know, like Nurse Jackie, like – great but she was a, a drug addict who was stealing medicine from right. the, you know pills from the hospital right. um pick any of them the, the people from the affair like everybody's got dirt on them everybody is like you know a little bit of a checkered uh, right. personality and i think that's what's so alluring uh, about those shows and and about those characters and i think that showtime really knows that and embraces that it isn't just the white hat black hat good guy bad guy like even your good guy, your protagonist, should have a little bit of uh, a moral dilemma going on in some, ways, uh, some way, shape, or form. And as the audience member, you're kind of, it's a complicated character to you. And right. I think that we actually try to find that even on the the documentary side and on the unscripted side. Like, like Belushi is a great example, right? Like, phenomenal character, but like, you know, he's no angel. <laughs> and so going in to tell that story is where you get a lot of, and I think that the leagues, to go back to the sports side of it, I think places like the NBA, they don't want you telling the story of Ron Artest and Malice right. at the Palace, you know. Right. Major League Baseball doesn't want to get into the Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa story cuz you got to talk about steroids. You got to talk right. about performance enhancement drugs. We all know how that story ended. But that's what I keep saying. Is, we all know how that story ended. Right. Like, you know, we know Michael Irvin wasn't a saint either. But right. kind of going back and telling the story of the old Dallas Cowboys of the 90s is the a house. fun the White house, you <laughs> yeah. know. Those are fun, those are great stories. And I think that they, in some ways, you're missing the point because I think it engages fans. Yeah. I think people like those characters. I think people are drawn to it. I think people will be happy to go and see, you know, watch that game or watch those playoffs because now they have an idea of, like, what this guy is like, what this character is like. Oh, you know, you know they can see the conflict in it. And I think that it's all about storytelling. And I think that the leagues need to know that. And, like, those leagues, like you're talking about, in particular, baseball, I think really needs to kind of go back to that a little bit.
0: Man, Showtime got themselves a good one. Oh, yeah. Vinny, thanks for joining me, man. Thanks for having me. This was
1: fantastic. Appreciate it. How many more of these are you doing? Uh, Today? Yeah. Just one more. Wow. I'm
0: baking baking as many as I can in like one week, and then I'm going to just put them out there once a month for like eight months or
1: something. I think this is the beginning of a whole new track for you. (laughs) (laughs) Watch out, Bill Simmons. We'll see. You're coming. Thanks, man. All right. Thank you.